James Purefoy is having an interesting year. In February, he co-starred in Netflix's Altered Carbon as wealthy businessman Lawrence Bancroft in a future where we can download our minds to disks and install them in new bodies or clones of our old ones. He's an oligarch who lives in a castle in the clouds and hosts black tie parties where people fight each other to the death like postmodern boxing matches. In Happen Leonard, which premieres its third season tonight on Sundance TV and is already streaming the first two episodes online, on demand, and on the Sundance TV app, James Purefoy plays a blue-collar Texas field hand in the 1980s who's always finding himself in trouble with women, and with his lifelong best friend Leonard, played by Michael Kenneth Williams of The Wire and Boardwalk Empire. Hap is white, and Leonard is black. In season three, they face a darker, purer hatred than the show has previously depicted when they encounter the Ku Klux Klan. In this scene from the season premiere, Michael Kenneth Williams tells Purefoy about the legend of the Devil's Crossroads and about the blues. Tell me, what is the Devil's Crossroads? Well, legend has it, old blues man came in and sold his soul to the devil. Right here in this spot. They ate each other's turds, sucked each other's cats, some hocus pocus crap like that. Anyway, that old boy became the greatest blues man ever lived. I thought that was Robert Johnson. Oh no, he just stole it from him. Well, who the hell was it then? Boy named L.C. Sooth. Oh. Uncle Chester said he went to see him as a kid. Sparks shot off from his fingers. No, get out of here. Eyes glowed yellow as he choked on that old guitar. I ain't never heard of him. Man, you ain't the only one. And a blues fan worth his salt, though, L.C. Soothe is, though. So you have to get viewers' attention pretty fast, apparently, on TV today. And the opening of this season, within the first minute or so, is a flashback or maybe a legend. It's not quite clear at the beginning of these two men at a place called Devil's Crossing. How does that set up what's happening this season? Because I guess the one of the things about Satan coming into our show this season is that it is a reflection of the KKK, and that that's the uh, the theme of the season is the kind of the evil pustule on the face of humanity that is, you know, any kind of white supremacy ideology. And you see those white hoods, those white capes, really early uh, in the season. Is that? I mean, you you grew up in the UK. Is that something you would have recognized growing up, or something you learn about later? Oh hell yeah! Oh yeah. How does oh, that? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think it's very strong. I think you know, I, you know, they have very good branding, don't they? <laughs> KKK. Uh, yeah, I think we we're all very aware of what they look like and of what that is, and you know, it's always struck me interestingly that, uh, that they always needed to wear hoods. Always kind of felt like if you were out and proud about it, let's leave the hoods out of this. Exactly. Um, each season of the show plays out fairly self-contained with a, a few elements that connect from season to season. I, have you talked to many people that have watched the, se- the series out of order? I think it would probably watch pretty well out of order, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't think you, uh, you know, I think you, you understand that these two are friends and that they go way back. And there may be the odd reference to preceding seasons. But in terms of they are very self-defined stories. 
Uh, each season that we tackle is a separate novel. So uh, Joe Lansdale, who wrote The Happen Leonard books, uh, he wrote, has written 12, nearly 13 books. There's another one coming out quite soon. And each season is one novel. So uh, they, they are very self-contained as, as stories. Are the books, how far into the series of the books have you read? I've read up to, I think, the seventh, uh-huh. seventh book. And they get older, you know, they sure. get older as they should. They don't, they're not locked in a particular time. They do definitely evolve over a period of time and things happen to them as things happen to us all naturally um, uh, as we age. Season three of the series seems tonally different to me than the first two seasons. I think the first two seasons are more like each other than 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 like the third season. Was that your experience watching it back now that it's finished? And it's, it... I found the first. I know I don't. I disagreed. I, I I found the second season tonally quite different to the first season. Uh, <clears throat> first season, geographically speaking, is very self-contained. Um, and doesn't move much out of a, a quite a, a, a limited locale. It's set much more in a rural environment. Uh, you don't really feel like they're part of a city or a town, whereas the second season is much more about the community of the town that they're in, uh, or that they live nearby, the uh, the town of Laborde in East Texas, and that you get an experience of the community, of the women around the town, of... Uh, the fact that because it's it's set very much with the uh, you know with uh, about the um, about the missing children, uh, and so you get to meet their mothers, you get to meet their church leaders, their communities. So for me, it was quite quite different in terms of that, and also I think because between season one and season two, we had uh, different showrunners. So uh, our showrunner and the creator of Happen Leonard uh, was a guy called Jim Mickle, and. Jim had come from independent movies. He'd not done much TV before. Um, and I think that that they felt, the network probably felt that between season one and season two, we needed to have somebody who was more used to doing television and what the rhythm of television was. And, uh, and then season three? And the same with season three. So he's done, so John Worth, who'd come from Hell on Wheels, and he'd done a whole bunch of stuff. He did season two. He's done season three. Whether he continues, who knows? I don't know what his contractual obligations are, but uh, we'll see. I think where I see season three differing is that there's a, I think, a strain of 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 hatred and violence. I mean, certainly, Mm -hmm. certainly, season one was violent, but there's a strain of 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 violence driven by hatred in the third season that I don't, I don't, I don't recognize from the first two. No, no, you're right. And I think we were just talking about it, uh, a, a junket, Michael and I, and about how for the first time we both looked at each other, happened Leonard and went, oh, you're black. Oh, you're white. And it's one of the things that the virus of racism does is emphasize the differences between people rather than emphasize the things that bring us together. And that plays on the show this season by you going to this town for particular reasons called Grove Town. And I guess, tell me, the, the town doesn't look different. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just looks like small town America. What is what is particularly different that, that causes the, the issues in this town? <laughs> Well, the, uh, in in this town, uh, as I say, the kind of the, the the virus of racism is very strong, and the, the KKK are very active there. And one of the things that 
we found, I found as an outsider really interesting was we shot this in a very small town about 50 minutes outside Atlanta. And <clears throat> somebody told me that the last lynching they'd had in this town as a completely matter of fact thing was in the early 80s. And I found astonishing. And so I started doing a bit of research into the town that we were filming in. And what was fascinating was that, yes, there had been these lynchings of a couple of Mexican men um, in the early 80s, that the KKK had been very active in this town. And the KKK often rises not so, uh, not only because of ignorance and fear and hate and all the usual things that, that rise with racism, but also because of poverty and also because of a lack of union, of bona fide union um, act activity in the town, at any of the industries in the town. When you destroy unions, then when people have grievances against those businesses, sometimes they have to go to whatever is standing in the place of the union. And in the in, in particular case of this town just outside Atlanta, it was the KKK. And the KKK were the ones who were looking after the workforce. The KKK were the ones who were making representations to the employers about injuries or about overtime or about poor pay or poor working conditions. So they were the go-to organize organization that helped people who were working there so you know that's a that's a very good very good reason why you need unions <laughs> and and you see in the first episode in this flashback scene this you see a part of of, of a lynching and I, I i i doubt that you were there for that scene but what was your reaction to seeing it in the episode when you see those 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 feet kicking oh you know i just find it disgusting i find it i think reprehensible obviously you know i mean i think well not obviously because there are people who would actually celebrate that that's that's the frightening thing and i think one of the things that we discovered or one of the things that i found interesting doing this season was when we were talking about doing this book the two bear mambo um way back last march we were thinking, well, how are we going to make it seem, you know, how are we going to get excited or not excited, but how are we going to make it relevant, the KKK? Because, you know, it's a very marginal organization. It doesn't seem to really be going anywhere. It doesn't seem to be part of the national conversation. And then, boy, it, it suddenly all come into focus. It came into focus last summer with Charlottesville and the death of Heather Hare. Um, and, and, and then of course the administration of the United States headed by the president, not stamping on it straight away and saying how repulsed and revolted he was, but actually say that there were fine people taking part in that demonstration in Charlottesville. Have you seen anything like this during the three years that you've been shooting happen Leonard in Atlanta? I was staggered at how many, uh, Confederate flags I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can kid me as much as you like that that's a cultural phenomenon, but everybody knows, and especially if you're a person of color, that that says something to you personally. You know, that if you see that flag, you see that uh, on a flagpole on somebody's lawn, do you walk on that lawn? Do you go anywhere near that house? You know, that is a symbol that says, you know, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. The casts on the show have been a, a an interesting mix from season to season because you'll have the, the two of you and then a few other people that carry over from season to season. But a, a lot of people uh, like 
Christina Hendricks in the first season and Jimmy Simpson in the first season that haven't uh, uh, recurred. How has each season felt, you know, from a from a casting standpoint, some more comedic, some more dramatic? <clears throat> yeah, I think yes, that's true. I think that uh, some comedic, some more dramatic. Um, you know, we had uh, we had the fabulous Irma C. Hall on season two and Brian Dennehy on season two. And, you know, these are real heavyweight actors. And it's, uh, I think it says something about the writing on our show. Uh, this season, you know, we've got Corbin Benson. We got, um, uh, we have a Lou Gossett Jr. We have Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, it says something to us and it's something that we find very, very gratifying, Michael and I, that these are, you know, big, heavy hitting actors, character actors who want to come and play with us. And um, Andrew Dice Clay, I don't think I've ever seen him as warm as he is uh, on this, this sh- show. Yeah. Tell me about how, I mean, he plays a kind of an unusual character. Talk a little bit about where he fits into the season. Uh, he's a DJ. He's a, he's a rock and roll DJ who runs a blues station in this very small town, America, this Grove town. Uh, and he's trying to educate the local populace into the pleasures of the blues, which ain't going to be easy in people who have country and Western running through their veins. And Um, and there's a racial element to that. And there is a very strong racial element to that. Of course, I think that he knows exactly what he's doing. He's quite a self-contained part, what Andrew does, um, because an awful lot of it is in voiceover because we hear his voice in the car and we hear his radio station in the car and we go and see him and try and get him to help us with the investigation but otherwise, he's talking to us through through the radio in the car, if you like, giving us clues, giving us talking to us in that way. Um, but he is very, very warm. He's a, he was a very warm man, and we enjoyed having him on the show very much. There's a lot of humor in the show, and it's a humor that I don't necessarily see handled the way it's handled in a, in a lot of other shows. And I'll play mm-hmm. the I'll play the scene of the the Christmas ants. Leon and Clinton. I'll explain later. They won't watch the house while we're gone. Ain't that right, boys? Yeah. Works out good, too. Got an ant problem at our place. We're better off here. Christmas ants, you know? Uh, nope. Not sure if I do. You know, those ants only come out at Christmas time. They everywhere this time of year. Our house is full of those little dudes. Goddamn Christmas ants? Is he red or green or red? Nah, they just come out at Christmas. They're Christmas ants. Yeah, it's ants in my underwear drawer. That's because your underwear ain't clean. Man, what you doing in my underwear drawer? You know they ate my banana? I left it on the table and they ate it. When when you see that scene in the script, you know that's a funny scene, right? Yeah, for sure. What well, about... Actually, it, was, it was a funny scene, but it's made... I, I, I will give myself a little pat on the back here. Uh, I suggested to Michael that he should do it in that accent. Oh, yeah. I said, I, I like the idea that Hap just dumps that on him in the middle of it. Hap has a habit of improvising uh-huh. a story, an idea that might charm his way out of a situation. And he, on this particular occasion, runs out of uh, the muse, if you like, and dumps the muse right on Leonard's lap. And Leonard can't do anything about it, but go with it. So the comedy comes out of 
about out of him knowing how uncomfortable he is playing well, that part. And it's an interesting scene because it's such an odd non sequitur what these two guys are talking about with these ants. And it just comes from kind of such a random place. But then there's other places uh, uh, in the script where just something feels odd. And that's a little bit funny or like the season, the, the scene in season one when the two of you are are strapped to that bench and you just pick it up and take <laughs> yes. off running with it. A lot of very uh, uh, physical things that I think might've been difficult to show on the page where, where the funny comes from. How, how do you and Michael know? I mean, you're the, you're, you're the continuity from episode to episode and season to season. How do the two of you know when a scene is supposed to be a funny scene? Well, funny always comes out of real. You know, it has to be real and you've got to find a way to make it real. And it it only it, it, it's only funny if people recognize it as real. Uh, you know, so a situation like that, how do you get how do you try and do a runner when you are gaffer taped to a bench? You know, how, how do you actually physically try it? That's going to be funny because your legs are tiny and your footsteps are tiny. And that's going to be an amusing idea because it's ridiculous. It's absurd, but it's also real. So uh, as long as it's real, um, you know, and, and once, you, once, you, once you set that as the tone, as the starting point, then you can kind of do anything with it as long as it's real. One thing I really like about the season that I wonder if something that people who aren't as preoccupied about television think as much about is that it's short. And that seems mm -hmm. either paradoxical that some being less of something I like would actually be a good thing, or if it's something about the actual architecture of the show that, that works short. Do you, what, what I do could you just tell you as an actor who has done shows, which are 15 episodes long, you are really aware sometimes that you are just treading water in a scene. You know, you're just trying to get through to the commercial break. And I'd hate to hate to tell your audience, but sometimes that is actually just the case. You know, that nothing is really being said. Nothing is really expanding the universe or expanding character. You're just trying to get through five pages of dialogue, which don't aren't actually in the end of it going to have any importance on the story whatsoever. Well, I'd, I know that sounds slightly heartbreaking. I but generally the hate the 13 episode order because it's not a creative measure. It's a commercial measure. It's yeah, something sure. that is that is commonly used to value budgets and to value um, well, um, how right. much to pay for a series. But it doesn't necessarily or even very frequently work from a creative no, standpoint. Everything always comes down to the dollar at the end of the day. And uh, but I think one of the things about Happen Leonard is it's very concentrated. We can tell our story in six episodes. It's six episodes of 44 minute hours. Uh, and uh, that's all we need. We don't really need any more than that. We don't really want to do any more than that. It, you know, they're not very long novels. They're a couple of hundred pages long. And uh, there's no fat at all. It's all pretty. It's all pretty lean. So. You're all you're also doing altered carbon, which is a ten episode order, I think. It's ten, yeah. And and that's a little bit different kind of show because it's a much larger cast and there's a lot more things going yeah. on uh, at one time. What has the production been like going back and forth between these two shows? I mean, you're shooting, you're playing a Southern American uh, mm -hmm. uh, accent and a and a very rural sort of period in in, in one show and this very futuristic 
green screen. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that was weird. There was two things there. One was that I was going, I knew that I was finishing Happen Leonard like on a Friday and starting All to Carbon on the Monday up oh, in Vancouver. Gosh. So, and I had a big scene in the very first episode. I think in the first episode of uh, All to Carbon, we cut it down or they cut it down. It was meant to be maybe a 20 minute scene. And it was a long scene. It was maybe 17, 18 pages of pretty much me talking. It's very sensibly, they cut that down to a five-minute scene because uh, best will in the world, people talking at that length in a massive, futuristic, digitally enhanced show, uh, and it's not going to work. But it did mean I still had to learn it. And so I was learning it on the set of Happen Leonard. So between action and cut, doing hap, and then between cut and action, learning the lines for the other show. Well, and I, I, there's probably a big difference, too. I mean, I've seen the set on, on Hap and Leonard when I came and watched a day of production this year. Very intricate. You're shooting in this house that's fully dressed, mm-hmm. 360 degrees. And I, I would assume that Altered Carbon, there's probably a lot of follow the styrofoam ball and lots of... No, actually, funnily enough, not. You'd be surprised. We had an awful lot of sets on Altered Carbon. Uh-huh. But the difference is, is that you do know that on Altered Carbon, it's a much bigger budget. I mean, the budget, I would imagine, in the first 20 minutes of episode one of Altered Carbon would cover our entire budget for the whole season of Happen Leonard. So uh, I think with Happen Leonard, Happen Leonard is more of an analog show. I think it's more like a cassette uh-huh whereas uh whereas alter carbon is like an mp4 file or you know it's 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 a big digital beast you have three seasons of of happen leonard in you now how was the accent to get the first time did you have to do a lot for that first season mm-hmm. it's tough it's tough and it's tough let alone coming from the west country of england it's tough if you're an american actor doing um I remember Bradley Cooper talking about this when he was doing American Sniper. He came, his character came from East Texas, and he said it was the toughest accent he'd ever had to do. And uh, and boy, is it tough! Uh, it's tough because it's much broader and bigger and more expansive than actually you're allowed to have on television coming out of a leading actor's mouth. Um, uh, if you listen to Joe Lansdale and you go and listen to YouTube videos of Joe Lansdale, or and there are a lot of them, his obviously his his accent is absolutely bang on East Texas. But then you try and I did that and I did I do a pretty good impression of Joe Lansdale. Is Hap, um, is Hap an impression of Joe Lansdale? It's not because it's a much softer version of it. Uh-huh. And when I tried it and I I brought that to the set, they went, "No, whoa, that's way too big. We can't have." I said, "But." That's how Joe Lansdale speaks. And they said, we know that, but we can't have you going that big. You know, you have to bring it back a bit. So there is, had to be a certain amount of compromise just because his, his accent's a big accent. I mean, if anybody would YouTube Joe Lansdale, you'd be amazed at how big his accent is. Everything that's made today, film and TV, has to be made uh, essentially to appeal to an international audience. Do you see elements of Happen Leonard where it's so specific and so regional where you just can't, you just can't try to make something that appeals internationally. You have to hope that the international audience is able to just put themselves in the place of this show. I think you're dealing with anything that's really good is all about universal themes, universal stories. 
and the universal stories of Hap and Leonard work absolutely everywhere. I get fan mail and tweets from all over the world from people about Hap and Leonard. And it doesn't seem to matter that it's about a very specific geographical community right on the edge of East Texas. Uh, it's, it's about love and friendship and loyalty and kindness and people sticking by each other and community sticking together. Where are, wherever you are in the world, you'll find that. So, no, I think as long as you're dealing with universal themes, then you get a universal audience. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me. I, I love the show. I've uh, loved the first uh, two seasons and enjoying the third season uh, right now. Okay, good. All right. Great. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you very much for talking uh-huh. to me. Too. Thank you. <laughs>